1: When Jean Lafitte left Barbary Terry Island, they fled for their lives. From Florida to Galveston Island, many took Indian wives. From a mixture of many nationalities, a new race was born. With high cheekbones and an olive complexion, they're called Red Bones. I'm a Red Bone, I'm a lunge My ancestors were the Natchez, Choctaw, and the Cherokee. Yes, I'm a red bone, and I'm proud. I'm. Yes I'm a red Bull. I'm a lungeon if you please my ancestors were Alabama Cushada. I and about Palcani Yes I'm a red Bull. And I'm proud I'm one Oh
2: Chasers,
1: Hotheads,
3: Draft Dodgers, why they qualify to be friends. Well, that was our opening song, and I have never played that song before. Um, that was a song written and performed by uh, a Herschel, a local Redbone in Calcasieu Parish. And he donated that song to us, and um, I thought he actually did a really good job, and he mentioned the the Mellonjins, so I thought it was pertinent to mention it today. Um, welcome to Blog Talk Radio. My name is Stacey Webb, and I am your host from backintime.biz. And um, I'm here today with one of my most favorite, well, my favorite cousin, April Mullins-Mila. And I met her in 2006. She's an extraordinary Melungeon she is um has um has been to Turkey numerous times um was heavily involved with um dr brent kennedy and and all of those who the, were the founding members of the Melungeon Heritage Association who does have their gathering union this next week june twentieth twenty first and twenty second Now, on the 20th, I believe they're going to be at Vardy Community, and then um, 21st, uh, they're going to be in Morristown, Tennessee, which is not that far for me. It's about four and a half or five hours from here, so I'm going to go out, and I'm going to be there on Friday and Saturday, and I'll have some books for sale. And They always have the most extraordinary presenters, and this year promises to be uh, just as as wonderful as all the rest And we hope that you can join us out there But um, without further ado Let me introduce April And April tell us all about Your melungeon
2: Well Where do I begin to tell This story I always tell people When they say what's a melungeon I say you got two hours Because it takes about that To be able to even touch the surface of what it's all about
3: I agree
1: I agree <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> And we talk in the middle of the night For hours about connections So probably better if we just go With specific questions you know Exactly Exactly I think that
3: um, You uh, The first time that I met you You did a presentation on grave houses Which um, Don Marlar featured a grave house from there in actually in Texas, I believe it's in Texas. Um, the one that's pictured on the front of uh Red Bones of Louisiana, which is a book I, that is no longer available, but we hope to back in Biz and Mira Publishing. I do have the, the publishing rights on that book, so I'm hoping. To, Soon, you know that we will get that redone And it's a matter of old style being converted to new style So that's been the hold up But you did a presentation in 2006 in Kingsport, Tennessee Which just fascinated me uh, The research you had done uh, on these um, grave houses And the historical value and the clues to our mixed ethnic you know uh, our people, and so please do tell me the history and and what you know of these these clues that might help us in the future to better identify some of our ancestors.
2: Okay, well Brent Kennedy very much wanted me to collaborate with Don, and I tried to, and he wasn't giving it up. I don't know if he thought I was going to steal his stuff or what, but. Brent knew what I was on to, and he very much wanted us to collaborate. But Brent was so open to everybody coming together and having a a multidisciplinary approach to this mystery, if you will. And he was right on target with everything. Um, So I guess what I should tell you is, for me, I had been to college before and I had been a social worker for many, many years. And I got bit by the Melungeon fever when I went to Turkey. Um, The first time I went over there, it was a situation where I was supposed to go with my dear friend Garland. And she always wanted to go to Turkey. I had no desire. All I knew about it was midnight express and, uh, I had always wanted to go to the Greek Isles, and so this was a cruise, um, everything included, and um, you flew into Istanbul, or flew into Athens, and then you could ferry the Greek Isles, which included the Turkish coast, or we often refer to it as the turquoise coast over there. Um, So I did that right before I was to depart. It was in 1997. She fell at work. She was a bench chemist, and she hurt her knee. And she didn't have any. She when we when we paid for the trip, she didn't get any travel insurance or anything because she was in good health. So she said, you know, everything's paid for. You just need to go on. And I said, what? And of course, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. But I did it, and it literally changed my life. It it changed my entire life. So with the departure, I went up. I had friends from Marshall University where I went to school the first time, uh, a Jew who lived out on Long Island. And so he uh, let me stay there with him, but he had to go to work that day. So I was in um, East Northport, I think, or one of those little towns. It was an old whaling community, and I was just kind of, you know, knocking around. And I went into this one shop, and there was a very interesting to me, uh, this little postcard that had all these different totem animals on it. I mean, certainly not all from the various tribes, but uh, I just put that in my purse, you know, bought it, of course, put it in my purse, and so I had it with me. Just serendipitously, I had it, you know. So then when I flew out of um, New York, On the plane, Princess Diana died. So here I am, playing with all these Arabs and Turks, and this is going on, (laughs) which was quite interesting to say the least. And then, while I was in Turkey, because I did the Istanbul, uh, arrived in Istanbul, the night that I saw the whirling dervishes, Mother Teresa passed. So I'm like, okay, God, something's going on here. You know, uh, I try and pay attention to the Lord, and I am a, a strong believer. And so then things un, unraveled and unveiled in very interesting and marvelous ways. Um, so,
1: okay, so I ended
2: up be. in Istanbul, which, like I said, saw the rolling dervishes, did the Hagia Sophia, you know, that kind of touristy stuff. This is my first trip. I went back and forth like eight times and ended up eventually living over there. Um, but so, anyway, I looked, I went to one, all tourists go to these, you know, rug shows where, you know, just the fact that they put them out there and they do all these wonderful things when they lay them out and it's just a show in itself. And they had a prayer rug. And I looked at that prayer rug, and I was kind of interested in it, but, you know, it it didn't do anything great for me. So then I boarded uh, the cruise ship, and at that time I wasn't that familiar with my itinerary, really. I didn't even know it was going to be back in Turkey again. Uh, But I was, in fact, and it was in the small community of Kusadasi, which Kusadasi is, I would say to people, Kind of like the Myrtle Beach, if you will. I mean, if you had to compare the two of the Turquoise Coast. Now, the elite area there would probably be Bodrum and Antalya, and that would be like maybe the Outer Banks or something of that nature here. Um, So when I got off the ship, I was supposed to be on one bus. I was getting on one bus and almost got on the wrong bus and this lady said, oh no, 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 you're to be on my bus and her name was Nuran Sule who ended up becoming my wonderful wonderful friend for many years and still is and she's still over there and uh, the other trips that I would take back and forth I would often stay with her as well and I just developed a, a complete and extended uh, Turkish family over there. Nuran, I used to call her the Countess of Kushida Asi um, Beautiful, beautiful Turkish woman, both inside and out. So then we went to, the first place we went to was Ephesus. And on the way, we stopped at this place where they sold, you know, the various Turkish scarves and things like that. And I was late getting back on the bus. And other people were just like nasty, nasty, nasty to me. And I just said very softly, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And that made an impact on her because she said, you know, I have people that give me Bibles all the time. She said, but you demonstrated something different as a Christian that I'd never seen before. So then we ended up going to Kushadasi, back to where the boat had actually landed or came to port, and we went into this carpet shop called, um changed names a couple of times, laugh And that's where I bought my prayer rug, and it's a silk-on-silk prayer rug, and it has the animal that was in that card that I had. And the man who told me. Part of me. Ethnic to their, you know, is
3: that something ethnic to their culture as well. Um, totems, this you know, totems. This is very unusual.
2: This is very unusual, you right. see, because right. Turkish drugs, You're talking about the Islamic culture. They cannot, and it's against their religion to depict anything that is alive, in material things. Yes. They do a lot of designs wow. and stuff in their rugs. But this was a silk-on-silk prayer rug, and
1: I had to have it.
2: He was not the person who showed me the rug. It was a guy named Typhoon, believe it or not. And he, we were trying to negotiate the price on it. And I said, remove your shoes. You're on holy ground. He took his shoes off and sat down, and the price fell by $1,000. So then Mern comes in, who is the one who ended up being my beautiful, beautiful friend, and we still speak and talk on a regular basis and right. he this was in the rug room, and he sat across the the room from me uh and I sat you know what i mean like it's like a bench all the way around the room it's like kind of like a kind of almost a round room, and he said to me he said. May I ask you a personal question? I said, certainly. And he said, what is that perfume that you're wearing? And I said, oh, that's opium. He had never smelled it before, which I ended up finding out later, years later, is because I had dogs all over me on the on the Isle of Miscellany or Lesbos. They don't wear it because that smells like the drug, you know, for goodness sake.
1: Right. then
2: right. <laughs> the next thing that happened was... We negotiated the price. I got a really, really great price, and when I'm doing my credit card, he sees the name April Mullins Mila, and he was the person who identified me as being Mellonjian. He said, oh, are you Mellonjian? And I said, why do you say that? He said, I know about these Mellonjians, Mullins. Melungeon, Dr. Brent Kennedy and I said well, not that I know of because at that time, 97 I'd been told, you know, oh no, 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 no you know, our line goes back to Irish Mullins and stuff so that was the beginning so I come back to the States and when I get back to the States I keep wondering when this rug's gonna arrive, you know and it arrived, Stacy, on the day of that harmonic conversion or whatever when all the planets lined up. That's the day that arrived on yes. my doorstep. And I said, oh, 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 you know, something else.
3: Right. So did you come back home and get in touch with Dr. Kennedy and, and your Find out about your millennium. I know you have not had your genealogy done, which is very curious to me because I'm a genealogist. I, I would would just die to know, but you have had your DNA done. There was which a great question for that, though, Stacey,
2: because once I got in touch with Brent and I knew that this is absolutely what I wanted to to spend my life doing, um, I didn't want to yeah. do my research. And so if I would at that point tried to jump into genealogical research, it would have skewed my results. You know, you, you find what you're looking for, I, you know what I mean? And yeah, I wanted to be I, objective about it. I really wanted to be objective. So um, I ended up going to college. I ended up going to Randolph-Macon Woman's College. I thought, well, you know, if I've got to get a ticket, I might as well get a first-class ticket. I ended up getting scholarships. And I ended up doing summer research um, on the Lungeon, and I got a Jesse Ball DuPont research grant um, that summer. So my research spanned two continents. Um, and the field work here included going to powwow down with the uh, Saponi. And I had some interesting uh, events happen there with the Saponi. Uh, Lawrence Dunmore at the time was the the chief, and they were resurrecting their language. And I said, what does the word uh, mika mean? And he said it means raccoon. Now, if I were a native, you know, and I wanted to describe these people, what looks more like everything mixed up in the world but a raccoon, right? Right.
1: <laughs>
2: but uh, he kind of kept his distance because he kind of knew what melungees were about, and, you know, they they were on the path of being recognized, so. But anyway, I still I still gleaned a lot of very pertinent information from 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 going to that powwow.
3: Right.
1: Also,
2: from the Supone. Also gone to some of the powwows. You know, I'm not that far from Bear Mountain and the uh, Monicans. Okay, so I've I've gone to several of their powwows as well.
3: Right. Right. Yeah.
2: That's interesting. Well, tell me about how you got interested in the grave houses. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Well, the first thing I did to kind of direct me in terms of where am I going with this is I went to the primary work. And so the primary work was with a cultural geographer, um, um, Price, uh, Edward Price. And I was actually yeah. able, and you'd love that. I have the copy of that. I know you're going to want it. And he pretty much poo-pooed it, you know. He said, well, you know, there is one thing that we know is that they had this practice of doing grave houses, but it doesn't mean anything. And I thought, he's a cultural geographer. He's not an anthropologist. And when I went back to school, right. I went back to school, my degree was in anthropology, sociology, um, And then with a
3: concentration in Ottoman Empire.
2: Yeah, I was going to tell you that, too, with our concentration in uh, uh, history, because I wanted to, uh, and human services, and I graduated with honors in my field, I might add. Uh, So I knew what I needed to know, that I needed to know as much as I could about that veiled period of American history, the 1500s, which we know so, so very little about. And then also uh, I knew that that Ottoman period, historically, that I had to know about that. So uh, all my history classes were of that period. And um, so from there I kept looking and looking and looking, and I mean I looked at literally everything that talked about uh, burial practices that you could look at, that you could find. And the only place at that time, this would have been in 1999, that had any kind of coursework on necroethnicity was Harvard. They had one course on it, and that was it. Um, I did find the works of Donald Ball, who had published um, about the Middle Eastern, uh, Middle Tennessee uh, grave houses, and he had decided that there was nothing really that special about them, but that they were probably influenced by the English Lichgate or the Scottish Cairn. But he was wrong. I mean, sorry, Donald. I mean, I talked to him and told him, I said, I'm sorry, but I respect your work, but you're wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, so everything that I found out um, about the grave houses showed me that, Indeed, this was an amalgamation of this offshore other, whoever they might have been, uh, with Native American women. Because I knew, and I kept saying, they have to come from a Native womb. And there's no other way. you got a Native womb. And so you look no, at the like whole, you've got you've got pictures um,
3: of gravehouses in, in in at the Native American Cherokee Graveyard. It's taken talking. in nineteen
1: seventy. I'm sorry,
3: I didn't
2: hear you. Can you repeat that? Um yes, you had
3: you have in your presentation you presented us with um a Cherokee graveyard in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, where originally there was grave houses. So um, obviously.
2: Yes, because the other archival information that you'll see there came from Hollybush, from the archives there in Kentucky. And so those photos of Stillwater, Oklahoma, show that they brought that practice with them, you know, once they were removed. You know, I mean, people are not going to give up their burial patterns, and even through being conquered, they just don't give it up. This is something that's innate and will continue culturally on and on and on and on. But my proposition was, of course, and then I also indicated that more research was certainly needed, um, was that my proposal was that it had an Ottoman admixture, And the way that I found that out was I went back to Turkey during my research. I went back there, and I'm in Ephesus. And so I have a picture of that one uh, 1850-some. I don't know if you have a picture of that one or not. That was pretty intact. And the fence posting there, um, Stacy, it looked to me like a picket fence, okay? Okay. But I had a picture of that because that was the most preserved, okay, that I had of this material culture, okay? And she's looking at that, and she said, this is Ottoman in design, the archaeologist at Ephesus, okay, at the museum. And I said, no, that's okay. She said, you understand. She said, I studied in Washington, D.C. I lived in America, Yes, I'm Turkish. I'm telling you this is Ottoman in design, and then she told me that the tombstones of that period looked like that picket that what I thought was a picket fence. so then I again, because of my uh great relationship with Ferid and Usterun and his family, they took me to a cemetery in Turkey uh the, that period, and that's what you're seeing there or you might just see an image, but I actually have photographs um, of those tombstones in Turkey. And guess what? That's exactly what it was. So this is the amalgamation. This uh, suggests that there's definitely a Turkish admixture here. Now, I will not say, as many, many did, you know, well, they're not just Turkey, you know. Brent Kennedy. They gave him money, and they wanted to jump on the Melungeon bandwagon and be associated with Americans, and, you know, well, they were the only ones that opened their doors to Brent, okay? Other scholars slammed the doors in his face, thought he was crazy, okay? I say there are many. I mean, I'm going to give credit to the Spanish researcher uh, and Manuel Mira, the Portuguese researcher. You know, we are many, all people, you know, one people, all colors. So you have admixtures of Spanish. You have admixtures of Portuguese. You have admixtures of Turkish Ottoman. You know, the Ottoman in, the Ottoman Empire was vast, very vast.
3: Absolutely. You know?
2: um, so very that's absolutely. when I the Nest. It's Melungeon Nest. Um, Melungeon's just got the the press. <laughs> but you have all these groups up and down the Appalachian, uh, well, the Indian trade routes. And I think you found a map from that presentation that shows those different uh, – well, they call them tri-racial isolates. They were not isolated. They were, you know, on the interstate at that time, uh, which was the. Okay. In, uh, I well, – I, I, hey, let's,
3: let's break Just Let me make a quick announcement. We are – it looks like we're going to lose live stream, but it will still be recorded, and we will pick up and talk about um, the Appalachian Highway of Trade there that you're discussing now, um, and you provided a map, which was an excellent map. I'm going to get a – I'm going to scan all of this material because I want to uh, pick up – our listeners can as soon as the show is over, it will take about an hour and then this will be available. The rest of the um interview will be available. Okay, go ahead, April. Um let's let's go right back where you were at. With,
1: with I don't the I <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I'll fill
3: you in because I was keeping up. <laughs> You had just begun to start talking about um, the, the Grave House influence on the Appalachian and that you were talking about the map you had presented with oh, okay, the different okay, ethics. Okay,
2: okay, okay, okay. Okay, well, now let me tell you, the happiest moment in a researcher's life is when they find an out-of-print book that they've been searching for. <laughs> Okay. I a name, right? I kept, <laughs> hey, you know who I'm talking about, right? Do you know who I'm talking about? One lone, no, lonely so, uh, sociologist wrote a book about all these mixed people groups. He went and interviewed them. Almost white. Yes. Yeah. And I got it. And guess where it
3: oh was? Oh, my goodness. It was,
2: it was at Randolph-Macon Woman's College on the Shelf. Can you believe my it? My nose the whole time.
1: I was ecstatic. <laughs> you will have not given
3: copy. I don't know what the copyrights are on Almost White. Like, uh, if we can, you know, um, what do you have? A physical copy of it or do you have a copy copy of it?
2: have the book. Because before oh, I graduated, goodness. I checked it out, and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I had to pay full price for that book or I wasn't going to graduate. And then oh after I graduated, God. months and months later, I found it. So it's my book. I mean, I paid like $135 oh, for that book. It's a lot of money when you're struggling uh, in college. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So I have it. But anyway, anyway, I digress. Okay, the other thing I wanted to say is during this, I'm real good about taking care of my teeth. Okay, so I'm going to my dentist, and he's like, Well, what are you doing now? Because I've had so many different interests in my life. He goes, well, What are you doing now? And I told him a little bit about the melange and stuff. He goes, Hmm, let me see if you have the turbicle of carabelli. And I'm like, What? <laughs> and obviously, he must have really studied when he was in dental school. And I said, what's that? And I have it. I have it in all my molars. What it is is it is an ethnic marker for persons around the Mediterranean. I see. And you're not going to have it in your body unless somebody came from around the Mediterranean.
3: Right right. Isn't that interesting
2: So that was a physical Affirmation for me That yeah I am this And I start oh when I started Talking to my relatives now that was Really interesting because I had Always heard that my grandmother Well I remember my grandmother It was my grandfather That was the, the Mullins but I remember My grandmother they said oh yeah she's Indian Cherokee of course they always said Cherokee And she chewed tobacco. And, I mean, I'm like eight years old, and here she is, you know, bedridden and had broken her hip, and she's chewing tobacco and spitting, and I'm mortified, you know. I don't know what to think. (laughs) And so then when I started doing this research, I started talking to my dad's sisters. There were 14 children in that family. I sent you that picture. I don't know if you got it or not. But uh, uh, many were still alive. As a matter of fact, my Aunt Rosa is still alive, and she'll be 99 on the 4th of July. George Washington Mullins married America Hagerman, and my Aunt Rosa was born on the 4th of July. Wow. (laughs) She'll be 99 on the 4th of July. Yes, indeed. But I started asking my Aunt Louima about Grandma and my other aunts that were still alive at the time. And my Aunt Luella told me that Grandma used to read Coffee Grounds. Wow. That is a thing that they do all over the Mediterranean, they'll read your cup. And <laughs> I, right. no. reading people's cups, you know, I picked it up like nothing, you know. I, I can read your cup, but really you never cute. read a cup after after the sun goes down. That's bad juju. That's <laughs>
3: <laughs> that bad you. I always go, um, of course, I lived in the Middle East growing up whenever I was a girl, and um, I also was married to a Jordanian-born Palestinian. And um, I go and rinse my cup very quickly so <laughs> around certain people anyway. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a tradition to <laughs>
2: You know, I'm curious, I, I don't uh, they'll like read the, your plate too. I can do the cup and the plate.
1: Yeah, have you seen but, him do the plate? Yeah.
2: Okay. Well, that, yes, that might have. be another discussion. Okay. So, what else do we want to make sure that we? Oh, Darlene Wilson. Now we gotta give kudos to Darlene Wilson. Darlene Absolutely. Wilson.
1: Absolutely.
2: Uh, well, <laughs> I, I would. I could only dream. Of, of being able to write Like Darlene Wilson She oh. is the best Writer I know he
1: is. He is And when they were writer.
2: I mean when the academics Were you know Trying to crucify Brent Because he did not write His book As an academic work Okay number one And when they were all going we after all him that. It was Darlene Wilson who defended him among those groups?
3: Yeah.
2: he's are cousins. Yeah. They're cousins. For one thing, I mean, yeah. literally cousins. Not you know we in the in the in the melungeonists call each other cousins, but I mean they're literally cousins. And uh,
1: absolutely.
2: good stuff about Darlene well, no, and really- the the major contributions Great. that she's made to this, and she was on the board, and she and I both left when they started that. Uh, Genome Project That's when we dropped out
3: I see
2: Yeah, there was a whole lot of people yeah, That dropped out. You were not real fans Of DNA No, not at all Because You know, the whole thing about Melungeon And Red bones. And Monica And the list goes on and on is that we suffered. We were treated as badly as any people group. There was an ethnic cleansing of our people group. We can't forget to mention Plecker. And yeah, but both Darlene and I, I and others felt like We there was were like a lot of things body. going on. All of a sudden, I'm a luncheon, I'm a luncheon, I'm a luncheon. You know, I mean, it's like we became proud of having this heritage, and we both felt that the DNA would almost create that white supremacy if people started getting into that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand.
3: I understand. That was
2: their, their fear,
3: Yeah. And I think the Native Americans as well, you know, came forward and said, and this is what they're struggling with, a lot of them now, um, especially mixed-blood Native Americans, because, um, you know, it it creates some identity issues. You spoke earlier about, um, you know, some of the tribal members um, and their families retained their whatever, their Native American ties. Um, to their local areas or what have you, and they're struggling with um, accepting uh, the white man to tell them one more time where did they come from. But um, DNA, is that's what it's all about. It is uh, a study of migration. And uh, if we look at these mixed blood groups, um, like you've got this map, and it's it's basically a map that I had worked from years ago, And I don't know if maybe I worked from it because you gave me a copy. I can't remember. Um, But you've got, you know, from Nova Scotia all the way into, you know, the very tip of South America, you just have scattered groups of these mixed floods. Um, You know, and, of course, as soon as the settlers arrived and the colonists arrived, they were pushed out. Uh, In fact, Tom Keenery has recently um, discovered, a document or a list of men who were removed from Jamestown for marrying uh, among the Native American women. And so those men, yeah, you know, we were immediately um, unwanted um, elements. And so um, Uh, we were forced into, yeah. um, Of course, there was, go ahead.
2: Ostracized and eliminated. Yeah, ostracized at best.
3: You, you talked about ethno washing the other night. No, you that's you. And laughed. you.
2: You're the yeah, ethno that's, wash. That's you're me. the one that came up with that phrase. I, I, I credit that's you for that. Right. And the map that you're talking about is one that I had discovered post the uh, Appalachian Studies Conference presentation and post. The Melungeon Heritage Association, that's my current research, uh, and I shared it with you right. as I do everything that can help us as we collaborate together, Stacy.
3: Really, absolutely. absolutely. And just like the Turkish map uh, that one of the chair laws um, pointed out to me and provided to me, uh, I sent you a copy, and it's a terrible copy, but there is a website that explains its origins, and it's 1803, where obviously the Turkish sent an expedition up the Mississippi river and they, you know, named all of these tribes that, um, some of them we've had one lady, um, from the DNA study group. She did translate part of, and she said, I've never heard of that Indian tribe. They're probably extinct now. Um, so, the recording of that map could have been even more ancient than 1803 was when it was published, and, and, you, and know, you know this is Turkish.
2: It would not have been in Turkish in the 1800s. No, yeah.
3: it was in, you, it's written in Turkish. It's not in Arabic. We tried to have some Arab translator, and they said it's not Arabic. They thought it was Farsi but it's not, it's Turkish.
2: Well, we can talk about that another time. I know what that was. Uh, Yeah, and and, and we can talk about that another time. But, you know, for me, that's why I shared that um, information on that uh, global group that I was trying to get. I I found out um, from my Turkish friends and from the research that I've done they i mean this is this is ottoman naval forces the ottomans were second only to the spanish on the sea okay and yeah. so no for a fact from what i have researched that i can see in english that they had uh pirates and they were they were they had uh they were based off the coast of England okay during this time period right okay so what i've been trying to do and sure. there's a i can't I can't quote his name right now but there is one turkish uh researcher that it, that's his bailiwick okay and what i've been trying to find out is how many people could be on those boats of that time period. That is key to me. How many Uh, Ottoman, not Turks, because you see the Ottoman world comprised so many various people. You had Greeks, you had Turks, you had, I mean.
3: Or Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I want to know that, I want to know at that period, what they were sailing in, what was the compliment? Right. Give colors of the ship, you know their capacity
3: and, and where they went, and you know we look at these inter- we've got some interacting maps of the Spanish and Portuguese and English ships that you know came and it and I, I don't believe that they even mention a Ottoman
2: ship well, in is any ob- of that that I. Well, that's because this is obscure. Very obscure mm. Ottoman history, Great. because I've been uh, because yeah. of you know the uh, the World Wide Web. I'm able to. That's that's how I came to find out about it. Okay, I've got my notes over here, yeah. but uh, they absolutely were in the Atlantic.
3: Yeah. Oh, sure.
2: The 1500s, I they were in the Atlantic.
3: When I, when I was going to college and, and finishing up, there was a, a huge-
0: plus